So our reading today continues in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, reading from chapter 2, starting at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to be the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, and to the sinner he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now to chapter 4, verse 4, as we continue the theme that the preacher is looking at of toil. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the word of God. May we gain insight as Pastor Steve unpacks these words for us. Great, Megan, thank you so much for reading for us this morning. And let me add my greeting to Jono's today, uh, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time, if you're uh, just passing through, very warm welcome to you, and we hope that this morning is a blessing to you as much as your presence is to us. It'd be very helpful if you had a Bible open with you. Please do 
Uh, take the opportunity to open God's Word and get used to feeling it in your hands, knowing where things are, uh, reading it for yourself, and especially this morning as we look at it together in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know us better than we know ourselves, and you know what we need to hear today. Please speak to us from your word now to encourage, comfort, challenge, and even to convict us so that we might change with the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, almost everybody works. I'm sure most of us here this morning in some sense or another work. From schoolwork to uni work to working in the garden or working on the house or working on the car to the mother's work, which we all know is never done, including that of the stay-at-home dad, for that matter, to the work we get paid for, to the work we do as volunteers, work is a normal, common experience of human life. So whether you're a student or a CEO, a receptionist or a retiree, a volunteer or a veterinarian, a parent or a plumber, almost everyone works and does so for a significant proportion of our lives here on earth, don't we? I think for at least a third of our lives, most of us work for at least a third of our day, perhaps more. It's no wonder then that we often look to work to give us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense that life is worth living to find ways in work to make us happy. When we, when we work, we usually have something to show for it. Uh, so we look to work to give us a sense of achievement, a sense of being productive, a sense of being busy. And busy is good, right? It's not good not to be busy. Because when we're not busy, how often do we get anxious that we should actually be doing something productive, like mowing the lawn or checking our emails? A few years ago, a New York Times journalist wrote, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, and in demand every hour of the day. Well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's done his research. And he profoundly disagrees with the New York Times journalist. Chapters 2 and 4 of Ecclesiastes, he, he turns to work and to busyness to see if it is any less temporary and frustrating than the pleasures and possessions that he chased at the beginning of chapter 2. And what he discovers is that just like pleasure and possessions, work is ultimately empty. It is actually silly and trivial and meaningless. And existentially, it's not very reassuring. Like everything else he's tried, once again, it's just breath, mist, chasing the wind. Well, to our first heading, and you'll find the three headings there on your outline in the order of service. To our first heading, why work doesn't pay. Why doesn't work ultimately satisfy? 
might give us a sense of achievement for a while, but in the big scheme of things, why doesn't work actually do it for us? Well, across the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher gives us a number of reasons why work doesn't pay. So if you have a Bible open there at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you can follow along. And, and remember, as far, as, as far back as chapter 1, he's been talking about work or toil, but now he tells us how he really feels about it. So he says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Isn't that just so true? You know, we work so hard for so long, build up an incredible business or department or portfolio, and we get bought out or we, we lose our job or we retire. And who knows who will take our place? Probably someone younger, cheaper, less experienced, and less competent, right? Or we can build a beautiful house and grow a gorgeous garden. But then the day comes when we have to sell it all, hand over the keys to someone else, and who knows what they will do with all our hard work probably bulldoze it and build 30 townhouses. And even if we do manage to see our work through to the very end, eventually we will die and we have to leave it all behind for someone else to do with as they want to do. See, the point is that in the end, no matter how hard we work, eventually our work will leave our hands and we will have to give up control over it. Just ask Harry Packer. Oh, wait, you can't. He's dead. One day, everything we've worked so hard for will be beyond our control because it's vanity, meaningless mist, just breath. But that's not all. Look at me at verse 20. So the preacher has also realized about work something else. And he says in verse 20, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. See here the preacher despairs of his own work as he, he turns his eye to all the kids who get to enjoy the fruits of their parents' hard work. born into money they didn't earn and never will, the trust fund kids. They might be clever. They might be idiots. It doesn't matter. 
They are the kids who can do whatever they want, have whatever they want, because someone else will always fit the bill. So what's the point of hard work? Some people never work a day in their lives and still end up with everything I'm working so hard for. What's the point? And even worse, trying to work hard and to achieve and to be productive usually only guarantees one thing. Anxiety. Disappointment. Frustration and sleepless nights. You know, even in church ministry, I relate to this. There's many nights where Melissa and I have had a cup of tea together, watched some TV, gone to bed at a reasonable hour, tired, yawned through prayers, turned off the light, and no sooner has my head hit the pillow, and suddenly the brain's in overdrive. And I'm thinking about that conversation, that email, that sermon, that project. I'm sure I'm not the only one here. Work, you, you can't get away from it. It grinds you down. It occupies your heart and your mind. And worse still, to rub salt in the wound, your neighbor down the road doesn't have to work, and yet he enjoys everything you're working so hard for. It's breath. It's vanity. It's meaningless as mist. Well, just over the page in chapter 4, it's no better. Chapter 4, verse 4. There the preacher points out, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity in striving after the wind. Excuse me. So sure, we want to be good in our work, but after a while, don't our noble aspirations just devolve into staying ahead of the pack? Into competition against our nearest competitor? My business rather than theirs. Beating them to the contracts. Making sure my garden just looks better than my neighbor's. Making sure I just get a few more marks than the kid in the next desk so I can tell mum and dad, at least I did better than him. Just enough to stay ahead of the pack. Again, it's meaningless. And it gets worse still, because then there's the meaningless of overwork. Jump down to verse 7, chapter 4. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. I imagine the preacher here kind of going for his daily walk, and he's noticing a guy he sees every day. Maybe he's a builder, building houses. He's working incredibly hard. He works so hard he has no family because he's married to the job. From early in the morning to late at night, he squeezes out every drop of activity he can from the daylight hours. And sometimes outside of that with the lights on, gets dark. He works weekends too. He barely stops to eat, usually just having a sandwich in the one hand and a hammer in the other. And when he's done on one house, he moves on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. 
and the next one. And of course, he's got a lot to show for his work. He's built lots of houses. In fact, he owns a beautiful house in a fashionable suburb, a short walk away from the beach. But as the preacher watches the busy builder at work, he thinks to himself, you know what? I wonder if he ever stops to ask himself one question. Who am I doing this all for? He can't be doing it for his family because he hasn't got one. But he doesn't seem to be doing it for himself either. Because he never stops long enough to actually enjoy the rewards of all his hard work. He never sits on the back deck of his beautiful house with a cold beer to enjoy the view. He never takes that short walk down to the beach. Because he's too busy working working for more. He's never satisfied with riches. And so he never stops to ask, is it all worth it? It's the sense of being busy gives him a sense of something. I think we all know this person. Maybe, maybe it's you. Replying to emails before you get out of bed or after you've gotten them working through lunch, trying not to get couscous on your keyboard. Guilty giggles there. Answering the phone during family meals. Working weekends. Working side hustle on top of the full-time job just so you can have more. It's meaningless mist. It's breath. It's vanity. Well, it can be tempting on the back of all that. I think we kind of need to take a deep breath after all. It's quite depressing stuff, isn't it? But I think it can be tempting to look back on all of that and decide, you know what? Let's just all forget about work. Let's all quit our jobs. Let's drop out of school, drop out of uni. We can all go and buy a big property somewhere out west. We can all go and live on a commune together and wait for Jesus to come back. Who's up for that? I won't ask a show of hands. But I mean, who, who needs work anyway if it's all so meaningless? But that's not where the preacher's observation leads him. And it's not where his observation should lead us either. Because the preacher makes one important observation in chapter 4, verse 4. Sorry, 4, verse 5. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, to not work is actually destructive. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in the New Testament, Paul warns against the dangers of idleness for those who can work but won't, who instead become busybodies, who sponge off those who work quietly and earn a living and end up damaging the church. Not working when you could be is destructive to yourself and to others. There is something positive about work, which is why it's foolish to reject it completely. And the reason for that is actually rooted in the first few chapters of the Bible. So if you've got your Bible open with you, flip back with me to Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 2.
going to spend a bit of time in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, because something happens here that turns what was fulfilling work into painful toil. So in Genesis 2, we have part of the creation story where God made the world. And as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, just listen to the language that is used. It says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Three verses, it said three times. Do you notice what God did when he made the world? He worked. The very good creation was the result of God's work. Of course, this work didn't deplete him, didn't cost him anything, it didn't frustrate him didn't leave him empty, but it was work, and he had something to show for it at the end. Now, if we jump down to verse 5, before God made human beings, notice the comment that there was no man to work the ground. And so if we jump down now to verse 15, we add the final piece to the picture. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man that he'd made and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now remember, this is before sin, it's before the fall, before the curse, and work is part of God's good creation. It's part of God's good purpose for the people he's made. I'm not sure we'd all agree first thing on a Monday morning, but that's what the Bible says. Work is part of God's good creation. It's what humanity is made to do. It's fulfilling for that reason. And more than that, it's a way humanity expresses the image of God by reflecting God's creativity and care of the world that he has made in the work of making and managing and maintaining God's world under him. So why do we not feel like it's a good thing on a Monday morning? Well, that's because between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis, a seismic shift happens and the fulfillment of work becomes the pain of toil. There's even a change in the wording that's quite deliberate in the way that Genesis 2 and 3 are written. So please have a look over the page of Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. And I'm going to read this from the New International Version because it makes the word change a bit more obvious. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now you see what's happened? Sin 
has turned fulfilling, God-reflecting work into painful toil. Because humanity has disobeyed God, they've rejected God's ways. The image of God in us, and therefore our ability to reflect God's image to the world through our work, thankfully it isn't destroyed, but it is damaged. And what's more, now that everything is cursed by sin, the creation doesn't willingly submit to human work anymore. It fights back. Just ask anyone who has to you know, spray the bindies in their lawn. So if you ever wonder why our work is so often all blood, sweat, and tears, and most of us tend not to go skipping out the door on a Monday morning, the answer is sin. And this is the backdrop to the world the preacher sees in Ecclesiastes. It's the reason he uses the word toil rather than work, because he's bringing to mind the curse of Genesis chapter 3. In fact, he uses the word toil 25 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. He's reminding us, friends, that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, a cursed world, a world that is rightly under God's judgment. So yes, we've got to work, but we can't expect it to be fulfilling anymore in the way it was designed to be in the beginning. And so the preacher's conclusion, now we're back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The preacher's conclusion is that this is as good as it gets. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 24, he says, now that he's seen all of this, he's seen what Toil is like under the sun, under the curse. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And this also is vanity and striving after wind. It's basically saying, don't expect too much from your work. Instead, simply enjoy work and enjoy other simple pleasures, the simple pleasures of life that God gives as a result of work, like eating and drinking, as much as you can under God while being obedient to God. And while it's a little tricky to understand exactly what he means in verse 26, the point is simply that the one who pleases God, rather than the one who's just busy, the one who pleases God will ultimately be rewarded. And that's as good as it gets, under the sun, under the curse. Now, I know that's where the preacher leaves us, but thankfully, that's not where the Bible leaves us, because the Bible is one big story with one big message that culminates in Jesus. Each week as we go through, we're trying to connect these things with what Jesus has to say. And ultimately, we work because we have to, and despite what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has proven, we persist in trying to find meaning and satisfaction 
and a life worth living just in being productive in our work, don't we? In fact, there's a whole industry around productivity. There are books and there are courses and there are tools and there are apps designed to wring more and more productivity out of the frenzy of busyness that we throw ourselves into. You just have to pick up your phone and whatever app store you use, go look under the productivity category and you will find hundreds and hundreds of apps that will supposedly make you a more productive person. Because there's meaning in being productive, right? Life's worth living if we're productive. But what does Jesus say about being productive? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, and this is the last place we'll flip, flip over for today, to John chapter 15 in the New Testament. John chapter 15, this is part of Jesus' famous teaching session that Thursday night in the upper room after the Passover meal, after the Last Supper, where he's teaching his disciples. By this point, Judas has gone out to betray Jesus, and in a few hours, Jesus will be arrested to die the next day. So John chapter 15, if you've got it there, reading from verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Just a note, vine dressing is a job back in the first century. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It should sound a little bit like Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Wouldn't you like joy in your work? But you see what Jesus is saying here? We won't get too deep into the passage in the interest of time. But consider this. Because work has been damaged by sin, we don't fix the problem of meaningless toil by working harder, working smarter, or working longer. As if we could shortcut the curse of Genesis 3 through our own productivity. No, we 
fix the problem of meaningless toil by abiding in the only one who can fix the problem of sin. Abide's an old word. We don't use it much anymore, but it means to remain or to dwell or be, be connected. And Jesus says that those who are connected to him will be the ones who bear much fruit, actually who are most productive, who will have whatever they need to be productive, who will prove their connection to Jesus and will enjoy God's love for them and be full of joy. And on the other side of the coin, it's those who are not connected to Jesus, no matter how busy and productive they are, Ultimately, they will be left with nothing, dead, dry branches that are good for nothing other than to be gathered and thrown into the bonfire. I was part of a webinar for church ministers this week. And by coincidence, one of the speakers actually spoke from this same passage. And he summarized the thrust of it so helpfully, and he said this. A personal relationship with Jesus is essential to meaningful and fruitful work. The greatest level of productivity comes from the deepest level of intimacy with Jesus. The greatest level of productivity comes from the deepest level of intimacy with Jesus. This means that whatever work we do, what matters is being connected to the vine, being connected to the source of life, being connected to Jesus Christ. That connection will transform what drives our work. That connection will transform what we expect from our work. That connection will transform how we work. So let me ask you, whatever work you do, whether it's paid work or unpaid work, working at home or working, working at an office or a building site, whatever work you do, does the drive and the energy and the goals for your work come from a place of closeness with the Lord Jesus? Do you make sure to spend time with Jesus before your work begins for the day. It might seem like there's too much to do to take 10 or 15 minutes to just be still and read your Bible and pray. But the truth is, there's too much to do not to. How else are we supposed to have his words abide in? Of course, the work of the day will, in a sense, draw us away from Jesus. Why wouldn't we want to start the day as close into Jesus as we possibly could? Well, let me ask you, are you still hanging out for your dream job? The preacher tells us, unfortunately, there's no such thing. There are no dream jobs. Instead, any work can and should be done from a place of closeness with Jesus. And only that will bring joy and meaning and fruitfulness to our work, whether it's packing shelves or being the prime minister. As long as we're able to provide for ourselves and our families, well, that's enough. As the preacher showed us, you only need one hand of work, one handful. 
Or maybe are you expecting your work to give you meaning and fulfillment and a purpose and an identity? When you meet someone new, are you just eager to tell them what you do rather than who you are? Only Jesus can give you meaning and fulfillment and purpose and identity. A pastor posted this wisdom on Facebook this week. If our identity is in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure to our hearts. Who are you working for? Are you working for your own reputation? Are you working for your boss? For your clients? Maybe for your family? The one who's connected to Jesus works for Jesus first, and everything else falls into place. It's not simply about using our work as a vehicle for telling other people about Jesus. But perhaps it's simply just asking the question, would my king be pleased with the work that I have done? Whether it's the deal we closed, the house we built, the patient we treated, or the laundry we folded. So yes, we must work. Yes, we should work. But we also shouldn't expect too much from our work. And we certainly shouldn't expect from our work what only Jesus can give. Instead, whether it's the boardroom, the building site, or the back garden, we should work from a place of deep connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Enjoying our work as much as we can as a gift from God, whatever it is. Noticing God working in and through us, through our work, and aiming to produce fruit that lasts. How about we spend some time praying? to suggest that it's worthwhile taking some time to quietly reflect before we pray together. Maybe just in the quietness of your own heart. Perhaps consider whether you've been ignoring the harsh reality of the preacher's honest assessment of work. Maybe you've been trying to get from work what only Jesus can give you. Maybe you need to make a change and commit to a change and ask for God's help for a change in the way you approach your work. Or maybe you need to reconnect with Jesus. Hit the reset button. Whatever it is, take some time now in the quietness of your heart before I lead us in prayer. Our Lord and our God, thank you for the work you provide for us. Please forgive us for trying to undo the effects of sin on our work through our own cleverness and busyness 
trying to get from our work what only Jesus can get. Forgive us too for not being satisfied with what you have given us. Please let us walk closely with Christ to be deeply connected to him so that through our work, whatever it is, we might produce fruit that brings you glory and gives us real joy forever in your Son. We pray also, Father, for those who can't work. We pray that you would provide for their needs, that we would be eager to help them, and that you would give them fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.